Welcome to The Systemic Way. In today's episode, Cesar and I have the pleasure of meeting and talking with Hendrix Hammond. Hendrix is a consultant, couple and family psychotherapist, a lead family therapist for a London local authority and a qualified AFT supervisor. These are, of course, only a few of his identities, and I'm naming that because we are talking to him today about the presentation that he made at the AFT conference in 2022 called Meeting Identity at a Crossroad. So in our conversation, we hope to go a bit deeper with Hendrix in terms of understanding what he means by identity, intersectionality in systemic family therapy. There are many things I could say, but Cesar, I'm sure you've got something great to contribute. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, it was a real um, honour, wasn't it, to have the opportunity to sit with Hendrix and and speak about some of the themes and ideas that came out in what, what was an amazing keynote speech at the conference last year and to do it in a different way really in a more conversational way which I think lended itself very much to the actual topic of bringing one's authentic self and creating a space um, for people to bring different aspects of their identity and what, what really struck me actually was the discussion we had about organizations and creating a space of um, safety but also trust within teams and organizations and and in supervisory relationships where we can encourage people to bring aspects of themselves that at times can feel quite difficult to bring in a um in a professional context so i I found his words really um encouraging actually and a bit of a kind of call a wake-up call maybe for, for some teams and organizations in how we how we support people to bring their true selves to their work yeah, and I think just to add to that, Cesar, and I'm sure people will hear when they listen or if, they ha- if they're lucky enough to meet Hendrix, he's just such an embodiment, actually, of warmth and walking the walk of the talk that he talks about. And the other thing is, like, he takes really complex issues and I feel like he talks about them in such a simple, and I use that in a very complimentary way, um, relatable way. So I'm sure people will get a lot out of this episode um, and it would be great to hear any feedback as well. Welcome to the Systemic Way Hendrix, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you Cesar and Julie for having me, I feel very kind of honoured to be asked to be on your podcast and to talk about identity and some of my ideas and a little bit about myself. Lovely. Yeah, we're really, really happy to have you on. And um, this came, we, we met you at the AFT conference last year when you gave that wonderful keynote. And we thought it'd be a good idea to meet with you to ha- have a discussion about some of these ideas in a more, or in a, in a different format. So thank you so much. We should say, so the kind of the topic of the day really is thinking about the importance of identity and thinking about intersectionality within that in the implications for our work in different areas, such as supervision or working with organizations and in clinical practice. And one of our kind of initial kind of areas of interest really is thinking about yourself. So maybe you can kind of tell us about who you are and your your context, your work in area, where you work, but also where this interest in working with identity first came for you. 
Okay. Um, I'll try my best to kind of sum it all up, um, but just remind me if I've missed something out, because sure. uh, I, I do have a, a tendency to to go off on a tangent at times. So Feel free, yeah. Bring me back if I need to. So, um, yeah, I'm Hendrix Hammond. I'm a systemic psychotherapist and supervisor, and I have been in the field for about coming up to 14 years now. I started my my training in Hackney when Hackney, in particular Hackney Social Care, when they were going through their reclaiming model and where systemic intervention was being applied to social work practice. And it was I would often say it was a golden age of um, being in social care where there was lots of resources, lots of opportunities to think about what we're doing rather than just do the doing and lots of resources to having a clinicians attached to what we call the social work units. And I did a lot of learning there. And um, I'm now a lead family therapist for children and social care um, clinical team in, embedded in Croydon Children's Social Care Service, um, where I have, a, a, I think, a growing team of family therapists. And we run an academy um, during year one and two to frontline staff um, in Croydon. Um, and actually, we're starting to kind of run that to other local authorities who have heard what we're doing. Um, so I do that part time as well as I have a private practice where I deliver training on identity, on race and racism, as well as kind of doing some consultation work with organisations, um, just thinking about their, their kind of how they how they work with people in, in their service, how they how they perform as a team. Um, I think there's lots of interest that organisations now have about thinking more therapeutically and what that looks like in organisations. Because you're working with often quite diverse kind of um, employees from all over the world. But just because people are in a role doesn't necessarily mean they get on (laughs) in those roles. So it's about how how come things aren't working in the way that people would have hoped. Um, And... I think there's been more of an interest in more understanding organizational structures, particularly since the pandemic. I, I've noticed an increase, particularly as we're now moved into this hybrid way of working where people sometimes don't even see their teams because they're working remotely. Yeah. Um, and so they're more so in isolation. So how do you develop a team culture if people are, are mainly working in isolation? And often with the way things are set up, either on Teams or Zooms, we just move from one meeting to the next. There's no these like, there's often a lot of these breaks between kind of getting to know people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it has an impact on how people see themselves, how they see their organization, um, how they connect, belong, um, how they kind of think about the work really. Um, and I think for me, the reason why this has become an important subject here is I've always been interested. I didn't realize this, when I was younger, I've always been interested in identity. My family's originally from West Africa. So my parents, um, Ghanaian and Nigerian, and, and I've got a bit of Norwegian thrown in there. But so I, I won't go too much into that. But I'm, I'll tell you, say a little funny story. I went to Norway for the first time about five years ago. And I just kept on going around saying, these are my people. I kept saying to everyone, I was like, these are my people. Everyone was just so really friendly. 
can you not see these are my people? So I kept referring, just, just the friendliness. I, I, there's something about connecting with Norwegians around and knowing that actually I have some heritage there, but I wanted to kind of connect to. Um, and even though I was being a, a bit tongue in cheek at the time, I realized that actually identity has been really like an important high, highest context marker for me in my life. Um, being called Hendrix um, from West African family was a bit unusual. You know, people would like, you're called Hendrix. Like, how come? And I had to go into a story about my dad, my mum being into Jimi Hendrix and my dad was in a rock band and that's how my parents, there was lots there. And my mum, she was living in Cyprus when she got pregnant with me actually. So my mum came with lots of interesting ideas around culture and I would walk around with her and so she would be this black woman in England who'd constantly kind of engaged the Greek community in North London where we lived. And they wouldn't call her Kate. Her mom's mom name was Kate. They'd call her Katerina. I would always find it really interesting that they would call her Katerina, and her mom would speak a, a little bit of kind of Greek with them. And and so I was constantly exposed to this difference. So I would see something. So I'll I'll see something, but wouldn't it? I wouldn't always necessarily understand. I'd be just really curious about how it all works. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I was being told is that maybe as a boy or as a, a black family you were meant to look like this or this is what they expected but in my household those those kind of boundaries or those boxes that people may find themselves in that that wasn't the case there was there's lots of blurring and overlap and um there was just such an interest in people because my family were just very interested in other communities and um, we had all sorts coming in out of our house from all over the place and so very early on, I just, I just had to think about identity. Um, and I remember living in Tottenham. So we, so when my family migrated here, I was born in Islington. Um, when they migrated here, we lived in Tottenham, and we moved when I was about six. And but prior to that, I never thought about my blackness before that. I was in a school where it was so diverse in Tottenham um I remember my neighbors so we had a, a Jewish family that lived next to us and their kids and I would just and my siblings would just constantly play out and then and the other side of the neighbors were there was white elderly couple white British elderly couple and they just had us over for dinner all the time we had they just had kids in and out of their house and it was just we just did this thing we just all collectively just came together and um but when I moved to north, deeper North London, Edmonton, um, in the early 90s, that's when, no, was it early 80s? No, late 80s, actually, early 90s. Um, that's when things really changed. I was the only black kid in my primary, not in my, in my primary year, actually. There was another black girl that was in my year, but there was something about me being the only black boy. And I, I just stood out. And there was just racism came with it. Actually, it was it was it was a really shift, stark shift for me, and I didn't understand it. And I think my my experience of identity and how people were, I just thought people just got on. <laughs> but actually, what I was noticing is actually for some people, what they saw, they saw problematic. There was a problem with it even before they got to know me. So I was left just wondering how come. And I think I've probably been searching 
for that kind of understanding around identity and how people come together ever since, how come, um, in different guises. And now that I'm a little bit more seasoned in the profession and thinking about what are my interests, I notice that that's probably where it's taken me. Um, I'm currently doing a doctorate as well. And that doctorate's in organizational consultancy, and it's at the Tavi. So it's, but it's with system psychodynamic kind of perspective. And that's a really interesting to think about group process and how people come together in groups um, and and kind of thinking about my my own original training in systemic psychotherapy and what I'm learning now. And there's such richness in what I'm developing my understanding about how people see themselves and see others um, and why we do that in order to, to for survival, in order to um, keep ourselves safe, in order to um, manage our own anxieties. So it, it's been really helpful and using those newfound kind of knowledge to inform my work with some organisations and also my team in Croydon to some extent. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Hendrix. There's, there's so much in, in what you just said. And I'm trying to think uh, sort of where where to go next in some ways. I guess immediately what I wanted to share was as you were talking and sharing aspects of your identity, I was thinking of what connections I was making to your identity that of things that are sort of similar in 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 some way and the first thing was when you said about having something Norwegian because I'm half Norwegian so I'm like does he recognize me as his people <laughs> is that, that there <laughs> I am I'm your people um, but, you know and 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 I guess there are other things you know that, but I, and I suppose I became very aware that actually that happens, doesn't it? When when you're in conversation, when you meet someone, that in some way there's aspects of identity where you find connections, and then you might also there might there may be some differences. And I guess in in terms of the two of us, when we're talking, is me being female, me being white. Um, I also have Russian, Irish identity but maybe there's a similarity there as well in that there's a mix and you've got a mix there in terms of if we're looking at sort of culture ethnicity um so I, I guess in some ways it's highlighting to me how much we 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 do that I don't think mm. it's just because we're talking about I we're you know it's our focus but it made me aware that that's a process that, that happens isn't it and what does that do in in terms of shaping how we are with each other which I guess is what you were touching upon um and then I was you know I, I suppose I, I began thinking about a little bit about your relationship to identity and I think you're talking about how it's changed over time in some ways how you've got to the interest of where you're at now in terms of like the doctorate that you're doing um I, sp I think, oh yeah, what would my question be to come out of that? I, I think I was wondering, um, you know, I imagine that there's been some 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 things that have been um, 
how would you say, you know, like you open doors and you find these things out about yourself to to do with your identity and, and they feel like um, they settle within you. They make you feel solid and grounded. And there are some things where sometimes when you're kind of challenged in some way with your identity. And I didn't know um, if there's something to speak to about that. Um, in And I suppose I'm thinking in a professional sort of setting that's also informed your interest with identity yeah um i i think being a being a black male that entering into the profession it was a bit of a an eye-opener i remember going to my first day on the foundation course i i studied at ifs i've done all my training at the institution of family therapy and my first day on the course, I was stark with, at a time, they would have a cohort of 50, I think 50 people on their foundation course back then. And this is in the um, mid to late 20, like, um, 2000s. And I, I was stark with, there was very little kind of in terms of diversity that I saw on the course then. And I... I was only 25, actually, when I started my training. So it was probably one of the youngest people in the room. So I stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> I just feel like I stood out like a sore thumb. And I, and I didn't really know if I would fit. You know, I, there was something about belonging and fitting. And, um, and it's interesting, but I stayed with the training and stayed in the profession. People made me feel welcomed. Um, people were polite. But there was something about the lack of diversity back then that made me query um, my sense of should I do I belong here? Should I be doing this? Um, and there was lots of conversations about what family therapists look like back then, what they what how they sound, um, what roles they do. Um, and I wasn't too sure if that all kind of sat neatly with me. I just wonder, does this need, does, this, does there need to be a one truth about an identity, you know? And in my experiences, actually, there's, there's lots of ways that we can see identities, professional identities, our own kind of ethnic identities, our identities about other being parents, siblings. And there can often be these dominant discourses about what that needs to look like. Um, and it often comes through in how people ha- get into dialogue with each other. You often hear how people will position people based on the identity they either hold or the identity that other person holds. So with me, it, it, I try I, I to navigate it as best as I could. Um, and then just going back to my time at the Institution of Family Therapy, I, I had to question, should I continue on in the training? Like, because there was certain expectations about what type of career you should have had before you got into family therapy. You know, there was a discourse about what good family therapists look like. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, actually, I don't necessarily bring what some of the other people bring, but I bring other things. But how can that be just as good? You know, how can that be just as valued? And I I had some really helpful colleagues at at Hackney when I was there who were clinic and at Hackney it was quite diverse in terms of the clinical staff there and it was amazing that I would then go into a setting where there was diversity 
in that sense. Mm. They really encouraged me and supported me. And I did a lot of learning. And what I was able to see is there was lots of different ways that people did family therapy. Yeah. Um, there's something about our use of self. And I really leaned into that. Um, how can I bring in more of my use of self, not to be someone else? I didn't need to be a Burnham. I didn't need to be a Barry Mason. I didn't need to be, um, you know, Barbara McKay or Chichamera. I didn't need to be anyone else but Hendrix. Um, and so I started to lean into that version of who is Hendrix as a family therapist, as opposed to the people I've read about and the case studies and their ideas and try to kind of because you you do do this thing when you're training is I kind of work really hard about thinking about circular questionings like you know how would they do a circular question in this way or Carl Tom's stuff about internalized other interviews like there's this way that you get tall and and it gets into you and and you start to model that but actually what do you then lose of yourself and that's the bit I've wanted to kind of try and hold on to is like as we enter expression, how do we hold on to something that is uniquely us in this? But also, how do I translate that to what's uniquely individuals I will work with? So if I have that kind of question about how can I hold on to self, I wonder if other people, I have that self-reflective question, it's like, I wonder if other people have that kind of question about how do I also hold on to different aspects of myself when I'm in, in challenging situations, when I'm having difficulties in relationships, when particular see, people see me in particular ways, particularly when you're working with families or with couples, it's interesting how people then, are their identities get challenged so quickly mm. in these relationships. And it's like people are trying to hold on to a sense of who they who they want to be seen as, mm -hmm. you know, um, or who they feel that people are describing that actually doesn't fit with who they see themselves as. So I, I've, I've tried to bring that in a lot more into the way that I ask questions on what I'm curious about when I'm working clinically, but also when I'm supervising people. Um, there's someone I supervise currently who we're talking recently about um, something at work. I won't anonymize this, something at work. And I had to name something about their identity. That, and, and, and it's something that I don't think they had thought about. And I said, I think it's really important that you hold on to this aspect in relation to this kind of situation and maybe you need to have a conversation with the with x about this and i and i and i can see that actually for me it's really important to hold on to how identity it's it's always there mm. i don't think we pay enough attention to it um i often think about cmm and the hierarchical model and there's you know that you've got that context marker on identity and it's interesting, it can we can move between all the different levels, but identity, if we were just if we just stayed there, just identity, there's so much richness that can come from our discussions with people. There's so much that can kind of be unpicked around their way that they see themselves um, and how they see themselves in different contexts, or if the context changes, how their identity, how that may challenge the way that they hold certain beliefs based on their identity. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. Thank you, Hendrix. That's really sending me in in different directions. I, I think it might be a good time to name something that we we kind of discussed before the, the podcast. Right. Um, and when we said it was an invitation, really, that you kind of put forward to Julie and I to say, 
if we can, when we speak in, we try to name the position, the identity position or the lens that we're speaking from. Um, and I imagine that as a bit of an exercise, actually, when you even when you kind of proposed it, something as a kind of supervision tool or a reflective practice tool to say from this position, from my identity, this is what I'm bringing forward into this statement or this question or this this thought that I'm about to have as a way of really keeping identity central so I just wanted to name that because if that's that's um something that we'll try to do throughout this conversation and in in naming that um in following on from that I guess naming my position as a teacher and also my position as a therapist mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in the developmental aspect of this stuff that you're talking about. You know, this, you go through a training course, which is complex. Um, you do four years of systemic thinking where it goes, well, I mean, different courses do differently, but you know, you go so wide and then so focused and you're learning kind of the, the history and the development of it. And then you get introduced to these kind of grand masters of family therapy and these key terms. Um, and this kind of I- idea of holding on to yourself during that process or coming out of that with what you just said, the Hendrix way of, you know, our, our way, my way of doing this work. And I'm wondering, you now 14 years in, you said there's a bit of a veteran in the game, it sounded like when you when you said that. Well, I'm wondering what, what your reflections are on that process of when you kind of came back to being able to have the confidence of doing it your way and was there a, a was there a shift in your own development in saying okay now I've maybe gone through that process of emulating or f- trying to do the Carl Tom interview interventive interviewing or etc and now now I can find my way of doing it yeah it's a good question um I remember when I when I was training I used to have one of these notebooks where I write all of your questions. <laughs> so I'd, like, I'd carry around this notebook and all the different questions I'd want to ask, all the questions I'd read about. And, and I, I'd try and just practice that, constantly practice, practice, practice. And I believe when I worked in CAMS, and I also then worked in settings, which I was confronted by, but actually for me as a, as a black male therapist, it was very unusual to have a black male therapist in a CAM setting actually as well. Mm. So going into CAMs, I would be just, there was another exposure to my difference. Um, and it was interesting, the interactions with my colleagues around my difference, um, because it was generally female dominated, very middle class. I would often say I came from working class backgrounds, but I will own, actually I probably have moved towards a middle class kind of status if people were to look at me um think of what I've kind of um kind of achieved and there was be there would be a bit of discomfort actually as well that I would kind of think actually where's Hendrix and all this I, I can't be something I'm not and what I started to notice is when I going to work with families in a can setting the what made a difference wasn't a really smart question in my head it was just me bringing forth various identities so there's one young man who who was having um night terrors i'm just remembering and was so socially anxious 
um, and found it really difficult to leave the home. But he, his mother and dad got him to the clinic. And what I and all I did was just play. I just think uh, there's a playfulness to me. Yeah. I said, like, Hendrix, let me just tap into this. Play. Let me just park being this therapist for one second. Park having these really fancy kind of questions. Mm. Let me just let me just tap into that identity of being a playful human being, interacting with a child who is a child, <laughs> and maybe play may be able to be a way to navigate um, how he connects to this space with me and think about some of the challenges him and his family are having. And all I did was play with him and play and introduce play into the family. And they came to see me on two further occasions and the night terrors had disappeared. And I, I don't think I, I obviously did something. I was doing something. I was very intentional about how I played. There was obviously, it wasn't just play for the sake of playing. There was intention about how I played. But it's something about how I, I, I stopped thinking that therapy needs to look one way. And actually my whole sense of self, what I bring can be utilized in a way that can still be therapeutic and, and informs good practice. And how do I lean into more of that so that people connect with the, the, the different versions of me that can be helpful? Because this idea about therapy and, and doing therapy with a capital T doesn't always work for everyone. So I try and do therapy with a, often with a small team. Because um, I've had, I don't know about both of you, I've had occasions where I've asked a really, I think, a, a, a simple question in a, in a therapeutic way and, and someone just barked my head off. You know, they've, they've responded in a way it's like, no, that's not, they, they've sniffed out that I'm being, a, I'm trying to be a therapist. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that isn't what they wanted, where as if I can just be who's Hendrix having a like a, being in conversational partners with someone that can be therapeutic. If I just focus on that, then I can kind of drop one side this need to that therapy needs to just look this one way. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that comes out in some of your teaching actually and how you might encourage trainees newly qualified family therapists um to bring more of themselves i talk about identity a lot so in my team they probably will know that hendrix is often talking about identity he's interested in identity i foreground it um in the way i teach in the conversations and i'm interested in how we do get into dialogue about how we see ourselves and see others um because i think some of our ideas around it is often in our heads but it's not often that we've talked about it it's often something we've constructed for ourselves in our own minds but i don't think people often in in an explicit way have these dialogues about how they've constructed it um and and hear themselves talk about how they've constructed it and hear other people's kind of um own views and their own other people's meaning makings about a particular identity um, and and me now doing a lot of the workshops on race and racism which i have done it's been a really fascinating experience to deliver this to a variety of different um, professionals and um, teams and some of them are clinically trained some of them aren't and actually how 
certain subject matters just really challenged people's sense of identity really strongly um and what i've noticed is we when i'm given opportunities to engage within a conversation which feels safe enough around race and racism people want to do more of it <laughs> so it tells me like we just don't do enough of it then right. yeah thanks hendrix I, I suppose i'm thinking to what you to what the last thing you said about us not doing enough of of talking about identity and and i was thinking about the bits that the, the safe bits of identity the stories that the comfortable stories we're happy to tell about our identities and that we repeat and often rely on and how that can limit us there's something from this conversation that i'm getting that is an invitation to to go perhaps to parts of our identity that we don't share as much and what we can gain from that and I think I suppose if I was to think of the identity that I'm speaking from I guess I'm thinking of the story that you shared in CAMS um, and I'm thinking of my professional identity because I also work in a CAMS setting so maybe it's I'm speaking from being a CAMS clinician but also my I I was, th I was also thinking of like my identity of being a child um, as well the young person that you spoke to made me think of a case that I've had quite recently with a, a, a person who is very fixated on a certain identity uh, an identity of being someone who wants to end their life and that being repeated to me and to everybody for a long time for months and mo more recently I found myself sort of leaning in to actually just I think I'm thinking of the word belonging and identity of how what is this person trying to say and and for me it was just coming down on a very human this is the word human I wanted to to bring in in that sense of belonging what is it like for me to share that as a child when I was that age yeah it's it's difficult and because she I was positioned as a professional and in a way it was like profession you're a professional person of course you're going to be nice to me and me being able to say but I'm not always nice nobody's always nice yeah. and and those different bits of identity that make you more of a real person in the room um, and I guess I was wondering I can see you're nodding like just what to speak to that like how much of that is as well of creating a sense of belonging that we are that you know I suppose no, what's my question? I don't know. I'm not going to, I don't know if there is a question. I just wanted you to, if you could just respond and, and speak to that. Um, what I'm hearing you say, Julia, and really appreciate what you've just said as well, is authenticity. Mm. How to bring more authenticity into what we do. Mm. And when I talk about identity, it is about how do we become more authentic with the different parts of ourselves and the different parts of other people we encounter in our work. Mm. And when people are more authentic, I think there's a better sense of more coherence with self. And people, I think people can often feel that. I, I see that, they can experience it. Um, when people are being inauthentic, it often does show, you know? Mm. And people aren't connected. So going back to the, the young person you were describing, Julie, and wondering your authenticity, and bringing more of your identity about actually what it was like for you 
what would that be like for that young person to see you as someone that just isn't a professional, someone that just isn't just an adult, and someone who ha- has experiences that they can kind of connect with? Because mm. often we're trying to get people to connect with this identity of us as a professional. Mm. And why would that just be easy for everyone? You know, it's not going to be easy for everyone. Some people will do it quite well because maybe they've had experience of that. But we may need to do other things in terms of um, how we position ourselves in the work that enables people to kind of see us as being more human um, and less rigid and static. Um, I think we can we we so often in our society see things as one thing. Um, I'm. I'm constantly reminded in my clinical practice um, and the way that people experience me that I can often be seen as this one thing. You know, I'm always, there's always this um, description of me. I think, oh, that's an interesting description, but it feels very limiting. You know, is that all you see? Is it all you see because that's what you're interested in or that's all you, that's where your bias goes or, um, but there isn't much either questioning or curiosity um and I, I wonder how do we encourage more of that about how we see self but other also how we see others um and go and getting away from these static descriptors like a parent what does that mean mm-hmm. actually let's take that apart you know no one's a, just a bad parent or no one's just a good parent people have different things that happen to them and are different in different contexts in different moments so the way that we start to see people and start to language how they are or aren't and how we engage them can often be from this really static um limiting perspective um and i i i'm going to say the word irks me (laughs) so because i just think we're so i know that the listeners can't see my my painting at the back. I, I probably have chosen this. I've got a painting behind me. Um, and this painting, when I saw it, it reminded me um a little bit of me actually. I think there's something about me in that that actually there's lots about me. <laughs> some of it you can see, some of it you can't see, but there is this, there's this richness. And I think not just about me, that I think there's a richness about everyone. And and it just reminds me of just be curious about the richness of who people can be and who they are, um, and that we're all we're all um, we're all human, and I think that can often be forgotten. Just, thank you, Hendrix. There's there's two things that is, that's taking me to actually. One is kind of referring back to your keynote when you spoke about this idea of being positioned, others positioning us. Um, and this kind of awareness, which you've spoken about, how there might be these kind of um, identity things that people put on us even before they've re- really got to know us or kind of very superficial labels that people might put on us. Mm. Um, and I'm interested in knowing that that's a process and, and we may be guilty of doing that all the time as well, you know, in, in a very kind of... Um, surface level you know you walk through the kind of streets and you're seeing people from different walks of life and you might be making these shortcuts and stereotypes you know the the brain tends to kind of operate in that way right Mm -hmm. and how we might work with that in in a way that then doesn't create 
an alienation of each other, a kind of separation of each other, how we might, how we might use that awareness of a process that's taking place as something we can then think about together with people. I think that's a really important um, area of my, sometimes some of my training. So thinking about bias, unconscious bias, but uh, also um, confirmation bias as well. You know, we are wired for bias. We are, we can't get away from it. We can't change it. We are just wired for bias and it shows up in lots of different ways. However, how we start to challenge it is that I think we need to be more curious about some of our biases as well as some of our unconscious biases. I think we also need to think about our values. When I talk to people about values, I often say to them, let me free of your values that show it show themselves in your workplace on a day-to-day basis. And generally, people find it really difficult <laughs> to tell me what their values are that they can say that they sh- that show up on a day-to-day basis in their work context or in their clinical practice. And it's because I don't think people are asked or have to think about their values. However, if you're va- if you have values which you can name, and if I was to then ask you, how are your values? evident to other people not evident to you because i think values become important when other people can kind of see them in action not just the fact they're just important to you because we aren't just singular beings we, we're you know interracial um we do relationships with other people you know we're constantly yeah. relationships with other people so how are people experiencing your values and if people are able to see those values not because they've you've told them but it's just you're just coherent in them in the way that you are then there's a way that you your bias your biases for example probably won't show themselves in the same way unconsciously if your values are generally coherent. Um, so, for example, um, if you one of your values is I like to treat everyone fairly, how would everyone that you encounter come in contact in your professional setting see that that you treat everyone fairly? You know, do you treat everyone the same, or do you attend to certain people in certain ways because of certain kind of identities you see in them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's having more of these conversations and helping people to reflect on how they can may position themselves consciously and unconsciously. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really nice question that um, I've been trying to use more actually in, in reflecting on my practice, but also in, in supervision with people of, what, how, how does your value how has your values shown up in the last week or in the last session bringing it to bringing it to your action kind of domain um the other part of that where my head was going actually was thinking about more kind of theory really and systemic theory mm-hmm. and and how a focus on identity which at times can be very individual to a person informed by lots of cultural collective histories but how will kind of focus on identity fits within a systemic approach which can take a more kind of wider meta view on a kind of a collective identity mm-hmm. and if there's i don't know if there's any ideas if there's tensions between the two or how kind of you, you marry up the two or how does it fit in with this idea of a relational approach more than a kind of individual approach. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What what I will 
will say is it's no surprise that we moved in the 80s from first to second order where we start to think about ourselves there's something that was happening in the 80s and it's and it's interesting for me to be a person that grew up in the 80s where identity was probably talked about it starts to be talked about a lot more um in the politics um around gender around race um around people who there was lots of um people that were striking people part of unions or the part there was something that was happening and yet it's that really kind of i think influence the thinkers particularly the feminist movement um thinking about actually the development of our what we now talk about the social graces um how that all came to be in the way that we started to think about difference we need to be more bringing more of ourselves it's because identity seemed to be something that wasn't attended to by um, theory. There wasn't a lot of theory around it. I think that people had lots of ideas what identities looked like, but it didn't fit collectively. And what I now kind of think about is, and also Kimberly Crenshaw's work around intersectionality came out of that period as well. So it's no surprise all of that was happening back then. And what I now think about is, um, we we can do a both and so it's not just thinking about the social aspects to identity but it's also the how the individual may kind of see themselves in relation to how other people may want to see them so how do we then move towards this both and like so what is it about the context in which people find themselves where people kind of put meaning to it but also what does that look like for that individual yeah how do you make sense of that how would you want to be seen um what aspects of self do you think people often see and don't see what would you like them to see more of of self what would you like them to give more space to how can we make more of that happen um and if we could do a bit more of that from moving away from this social constructionism lens that we often hold everything is so socially constructed through dialogue with each other i hear that and i think that can be helpful but that may not necessarily be all that an individual may want to kind of engage in is actually what's important for them yeah so how do we hold the individual as um and privilege their sense of themselves not just the sense of the, the culture they've been born in or the label that they've been ascribed to because again, working cancers, lots of medicalized models around labels. Um, people often have to have something in order to access it. So they go through the system as this label that's been constructed by the by the system. But actually, what what's that mean to them? If they were to come describe their own words around what's going on for them, what words would they use? And would it need to be a few words or could it be a whole description? And could that necessarily be helpful to help them engage in that system, but also reframe how we may engage them professionally? I mean, I, I think f for me, when I when I was when I was here when I was hearing you talk just then, it, I, I was wondering actually about. Of course, most of us spend a lot of time at work and in the workplace, um, and I was thinking about if you have any thoughts that you wanted to share around the responsibility that organizations may or may not have in 
supporting people with bringing their identity into an organization and 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 what that might be if there is one because of course you know our identities change all the way through our lives as well so is there something for them to be helping people on that journey and do Um, they think about it enough i suppose as well so in response to that i I don't think organizations do think enough about that. And not, not and I'm sure there are organizations out there that are very good at kind of thinking about people's different sense of self that they may want to bring to organization. And I know that there's lots of work that has been done um in relation to that for some organizations, but the organizations I've generally worked for, within social care and in kind of the NHS and in some charity sectors, um, I don't think that is something that is thought about enough and the price some of the private clients I've worked with um no that isn't and what I think that's about is there's such a focus on uh, the task of the role the task of the organization what we need like it's just this output whatever we need to output whatever we need to kind of be doing in terms of our process um that gets kind of privileged above actually individuals in the organizations who um are often t- attached to whatever outcome needs to be achieved rather than actually what what who is this individual you know what do they bring what are the things that they value and what is it about the organization which kind of keeps them in the role and what is it about their team or the way their supervisor are managed that helps them to do what they do and perform well you know and how do we have more um more kind of conversations which enable people to feel that they're seen in an organization mm. rather than they're invisible they're an invisible cog you know um because i know that lots of people can feel that actually if i wasn't doing this someone else could just do the job so it's like i i want to move away from the sense that people often don't feel valued or feel that they can perform at their best because of the context of the organization and that's a real passion of mine so my team I, I hope my team would say that they feel valued. I hope that people feel seen. I hope we make efforts to think about the different parts of self that people bring and are interested in that. Um, not just because of, it's because we're we're more than these roles that we perform and we're in work for so long. It's like, how do we create a community um, that sustains us? And I think we need communities to sustain us in the type of work we're working with other people and particularly since the pandemic people have found it really difficult to work in the same way I think things have changed and I don't know if organizations are are caught up with the changing landscape that people want a different relationship to their work um so I think organizations do need to think about how do we start to create cultures where people want to be part of and I think that's a really important thing cultures need to be created for people to be part of um and it's not just about this is what we do yeah i'm thinking about organizations and it's kind of this the sense the need for belonging to an organization and how an organization might create kind of opportunities for people to connect to their kind of shared collective ethic you know to say this is what we as an organization stand for and 
and how people might bring their parts of their identity to connect to those like Lego pieces and say, okay, I, I also share these values and having opportunities to actually show that or to live that together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also, as, as you was talking in, I'm, I'm thinking about inclusivity and an, a recent example, actually. And I, I, I speak this from as a, as a Muslim man, um, where I was, I, I, I consult at a particular school. I give them kind of consultations and, um, they have this slot, interestingly, which is the well-being team well-being slot, which they sometimes use for training, reflective practice, or for various things. And the one they done last week was we're going to the pub, first drinks are on the senior leadership, first round of drinks. And I looked around the room and I saw two visibly other Muslim men, two Muslim women in a team of about eight, nine people. I was like, including me then, that's five of us who probably don't engage in that culture, you know, of going out, let's have a drink. And that's the that's the thing that's going to bring us together. And it really did make me think about how, how, how is this team really creating something that everyone can connect to in a way that says, okay, we can also join into this belonging session you know i mean it it was a solution to a problem right they're trying to create something but how do they hold some kind of other values of inclusivity within that yeah yeah and and i and how do people think about connecting rather than like because it seems like the connecting felt like it had to be done in one way i'm wondering is there different ways that we can do connecting that means that more people can do the connecting as opposed to there's this one way that we we should ought to do the connecting. Um, and I think it goes back to my earlier point around, we often think about these one truths around the identities and what, how we people should do identity. So this cult, this these cultural truths about this is what we do in this culture, around maybe socializing after work. Why is that the truth? Who, whose truth is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and how has that seeped into kind of our consciousness that that's how we need to perpetuate how we do kind of um joining exercises and there's lots of different ways that people do connecting actually but i don't know if that gets aired or if that gets talked about or that gets privileged or people are interested um yeah mm-hmm. but yeah i mean hearing you talk it was making me think about how to connect that to people's individual identity as well so why they do a certain job and how, what, what are they bringing forward to that kind of question or that exploration in connection to their own background, their own identity, their own values, and that being an opportunity to connect people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested really in the implications of thinking about identity within the supervisory relationship and how you, what ideas you've got around how you use identity and supervision? Um, something that I've started to do more so um, people that come on to that I come to supervise um, is we do a genogram. So it's something we we do our, our genogram. I I set that up where I share my own. They share, but we do it in a way where um, you only share what you feel comfortable sharing. Um, mm. 
um, I explain it's exercise so that I, as your supervisor, can um, hold certain things in mind that may be pertinent for the clinical work that you, you will undertake. And but for also, um, there's ways that I may kind of produce certain things and it may be helpful for you to hear actually why. How come Hendrix privileges thinking about identity or privilege um, thinking about culture or privilege um, fathers in a particular way? And it's because there's something I'm bringing and that may not always be visible when we kind of work with people, particularly as supervisors and supervisees. Um, and I think using Genevieve in the early stage of working relationships can be a really helpful way of thinking about what of ourselves are we bringing to this work um, and what influences us. And since I've been using that approach and people I supervise, it's been really helpful for me to pick things up really sooner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I'll start to notice something it, and it will often link to what they've shared with me. Um, and I and I think I then it enables me to come alongside someone in a way that's like, this is reminding me of something you shared. Do you think this is repeating itself? I'm conscious of this experience you've had. Do you think it's something we need to pay attention to? Particularly if I'm concerned about someone's practice um, or someone's burning out and, and the way that they're working. Or I, I notice that someone is performing in a particular way without thinking, oh, how come you're doing it like that? Yeah. What's that, what's that about? And and that and vice versa. And how I like supervise it, I, I do like it to be a dialogue. Um so if there's things that I'm doing, that's also an invitation for people that I supervise to say, Henry, how come you you're focusing on this so much, this area? Um or if I need to be a bit more challenging or if they need to challenge me, I, I'm open to that as well. So you'd so, be quite transparent with that, would you? And kind of Very much so. I, I, I own that from the onset of the way I start supervision. Um, I remember supervising an art psychotherapist a few years ago and she wanted a systemic psychotherapist to supervise them. And what she found fascinating is I said to her, I think we've been working together for a year and a half, and I said to her, do you think I talk about enough about, about gender with you? Considering I'm a man, you're female, and um, and she was from South Asia. So it's like, and we may have some cultural ideas around gender. Like, do do, and she found that really helpful. Like, Hendrix, you just naming that. I never have anyone that just says, do we think about enough about this? Mm -hmm. And I think we can spend some time talking about it, but I think it's really helpful that you've invited me to, you know, go there and you're, you're acknowledging something. It's not just about the material that people bring to supervision. It's about ourselves that we bring as well. So how do we connect with ourselves? Because ourselves are often in the rooms clinically. And it's just like we can get so focused on the, the content of the material. And I think there can be a, a missed opportunity about what are people's selves that we're also bringing that's also present and needs attention. And also as you as a supervisor, supervisee, how do you navigate that in a way that um, creates, creates opportunities for growth, development and learning in good practice? I think I, I, I just wanted to share some words, actually, that have sort of resonated or come to me throughout the 
conversation that we've had today and I guess I felt like I wanted to share them because it's quite unexpected I suppose in some way for me and I'd be interested to you know to hear what what you think and I think it was space trust being and I think there's I've really got something around there's something about identity in the way we've spoken about it together today um as an act of resistance actually in some way in that there's something about slowing down in the fast-paced world that we live in and taking time that allows hopefully for something different and yeah those were the words that I, I just I just got in the last few moments which was space trust being and I don't know if you wanted to say anything to that Hendrix um, you've, you've put a smile on my face Julie <laughs> and I, I just feel very kind of touched by your words because I think um I think that's what I've often needed but what you've just rec- like what you've named I think in my life I've I've recognized I've 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 been quickly been assumed as something I'm neither not as a, as a black man growing up in London there's I'm six foot two and I've got locks and there's all sorts of ways that people may see you you know there's all sorts of ways that people may um, position you and growing up and wanting to just really connect like being really interested in people but wanting to connect with them but people not necessarily connecting with with your different aspects of self because all they will often see first of all is what what's visible to them my maleness and my race um and my height and my hair and and actually what I've tried to create and what I've created and created hopefully in my team is space to get to know each other space for them to be seen space for them to be heard um trust I think trust is really important I think think about attachment styles and how people um need safety in people that supervise them and if there isn't trust there it's very interesting what you do and don't bring to supervision I don't know about both of you there's people I've I've been supervised by and it's interesting what I do share with them, what I don't share with them, what I hold back from. Right? And when I feel like I have a trusting relationship of as a nice either supervise or vice versa, there's a way that we start to talk, that we start to kind of see some of people's um, complexities in the work, some of the different identities they hold. Some of our work can be quite performative. Identities can often be quite performative. Mm-hmm. I think we get in this in our heads about this is who we need to show up as, you know, and so I need to show up as this, and so we're performing often, and I'm interested in seeing the real. I think that's that's like I want to be authentic. I want people to be an authentic self because we're expecting our clients to be authentic themselves. How can we do some of that in our clinical work? And it's not to say being authentic means swearing or or you know turning up late <laughs> to me it's more just that that humanity in the in that gets lost in these labels and descriptions of what clinical work needs to look like and who we need to be 
and being an identity and like when you're like that's that sense of just being just I think we we, we so don't allow people just to be <laughs> we often try to get people to, to to be what we expect them to be um and thinking about identity and maybe over the next week you may kind of listen out to how people describe other people or describe you or how you even describe other people there's something in the way we're describing is that we're wanting people to change <laughs> and we're wanting them to change into something we would either want them to be or expect them to be or or vice versa there's something about how people and that's where the social constructionism like that that whole idea of that we did identify ourselves through the conversation to others because we're so influenced by the other. But actually, what gets lost is the individual. How does the individual want to be seen? How they they because there's often parts of ourselves that aren't really seen by anyone. Um and I'm just gonna also add this. I, I did a bit of traveling when I just before I, I started my um my psychology degree, I went to Nepal by myself. Um, I decided I was this 20-year-old young man, decided to go to Nepal. Um, it was it was a decision I made last minute and I said, let me just go to Nepal just before university. I I I came back a different type of 20-year-old. <laughs> After a few months in Nepal, I ended up going to India as well. Met some Israelis, um, Jewish Israelis in Nepal, tra- traveling. And I remember when my my friends dropped me off at the airport, and when they picked me up, I dropped me off. I I was very much a London young man going to Nepal. I came back with flip flops and guitar. <laughs> <laughs> And like most of my things, I just I'd given it away. Like there's su- there was such a shift in who I was. It, like there's there's an idea of who I thought I needed to be. And when I was there, it, it also helped me recognize there was this construction of self that didn't fit for me. I was I was perform there's something performative I was doing. And I came back and it, and and I started to notice that there was a, a shift in the way that I start to see myself, see the world, see others. And then there was and over there, I didn't need to perform in the same way. There, there was there were, I wasn't being positioned in the same way that I get positioned over here. And I think that in itself as well, I brought into my practice. You know, I bring in all these experiences from my childhood, from my travels, um, from my clinical experience, and that self reflexivity. I, and that's when I said, who is Hendrix? That is Hendrix, you know? So how is how am I foregrounding that? And what I would bring of people, what I would say to people is to bring more of that of themselves. That's of what of the things of you, the unique experience that you need to bring to a foreground that makes you unique. And you can kind of draw on that to inform how you bring more of yourself. So if you do more of that, people will probably do more of that themselves in their clinical practice. Other people you supervise, clients you work with, is um, how can we do a bit more? Mm-hmm. That's making me think about the fluidity of identity and this idea that it it can change constantly. You know, in this kind of constant movement that can, in certain parts of your identity, that you can move between different spaces and how you might be defined by others in a certain way, 
and you might feel comfortable with that at a certain period of your life but then for your own growth or experience or developments you might want to shift or you might move away from that kind of description of yourself and I think what I'm hearing where I'm going with hearing what you're talking about today Hendrix is by kind of foregrounding conversations of identity it does it moves it away from being something that's fixed to a place where it's constantly spoken about thought about and it gives it that life of it can change and things can move yes and and it's more in keeping with what life actually looks like because it does because we're just we're just being more explicit about it because it can often be implicit in lots of ways um but it's that ex- explicit way that we can kind of kind of say this is what normally happens and we're doing is just saying yeah let's 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 have a conversation about that but on on the flip side to that there, there can be something quite um norm- normative you know this kind of idea i'm thinking of like non-therapy conversations and how people do make these concrete descriptions of identity all the time you know and and when that's happened to me in my life with people that I love dearly like my my mum might do it you know and I've always felt an averse aversion to that because I'm like I used to be like that mum you know that kind of thing like (laughs) I'm not like that anymore and um Mm. and thinking about change and process of change and how you might see your change in yourself much sooner than others And I'm connecting it to one of the questions that you said in the YAFT conference that really stuck with me, actually. Um, and it, I'll read it out. It was, which identities would you like to be more present with this family, this child, this couple, and this team? Mm-hmm. And thinking about that within this framework of fluid identities and developments. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that as a kind of a pre-session discussion or a, a reflective question post-session something really powerful actually and and bringing intentionality Mm. to to what what you're how you're presenting parts of your identity or thinking about parts of your identity Mm. yeah um i want to come to renos hendrix i think your mum's friends wouldn't be happy with that uh, you should have. You should have got that pronunciation correct. Yeah, I would have got. Uh, I should have. Papadopoulos. <laughs> Papadopoulos. Yeah, Papadopoulos. Yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry, Rinos, if you've heard this. <laughs> out there, I'm really sorry. Um, but he talks about domains of identity, and that's where that comes from for me. It's like his book, um, Involuntary Dislocation. I, I, um, I think it's such a helpful way of how he's reframed how what would often be described as asylum seekers or refugees, reframing the language is actually they've not chosen to be in the situation they're in. There's events that are outside of their kind of, their control that's happened to them. And change that language and also thinking about how their identity is being shook by what's happened to them. And how our language, by describing people as either refugees or asylum, what meaning are we putting to them? But they may not be describing for themselves as that, you know. Um, and it goes back to what you were saying, Sazo, about how people may expect you to be one way based on an experience, based on what they think you are. Oh, and, and we're all subjective. No one's objective. We're all subjective beings. 
So they're going to see things from their subjective view. And so that change in people's identities or when they are adopting a different identity may not always be visible because people aren't necessarily seeing it or wanting to see it because they may be very fixed in the way that they want to see things. Um, but, it all, but it all needs to be about an invitation. So how do we become invitational? So I don't try and hammer things over people's heads and say, you need to see it this way. But it's how do I invite people into a conversation about, okay, I'm interested in how come you see me this way? What is it that you're seeing or noticing? I'm curious about that. Yeah, tell me a bit more. And it's slowing it right down and going back to Julie, your point, giving it space. You know, as opposed to someone says something about your identity and it 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 may kind of not sit well with you and you may want to push that away. I wonder if that just closes down a conversation as opposed to how can I stay with that tension? Mm. So if we stay with that tension, Sage, so I hope it's okay to just use your example of your mum. You stay with that tension, the mum, that's a really interesting way you, you describe me, actually. What are you noticing? Have you have you noticed anything different about me though? Because I'm I'm seeing, but I'm doing it because there's something about maybe what she's seeing, what you're seeing, and it's just like it's maybe not it's not meeting each other, you know. There's, 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 and so, how do we how do we move forward? How do we evolve um, how people see people, see situations, see identity? Um, and it's not by just saying this is who I see myself. It's like no, how do we create more dialogue, not monologues? And connecting to that. It's making me think about people can be invested in seeing certain identities and others, right? And people might not want to see a difference in the other. And I guess opening those conversations it would be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And knowing about why people are invested. Like there's something about even for them having the conversations, even if they're invested, giving them time to name, like letting them hear themselves about mm-hmm. their investments. And maybe that in itself can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in- interesting conversation to be had at my mum's house this weekend. Uh, I imagine, Andrews, I might have to give you a quick call and say, "Has <laughs> it worked?" Yeah. But yeah, um, yes. I look, we're coming to an end, Julie. I don't know if you've got a final question, or should we should we draw it to an end? I know we've taken up a lot of your time, Andrews. So really I know. Grateful. I mean, I suppose. Well, only our usual, where we like to. Where 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 mm. we like to go at the end, and I think it, it it's important to give to give that opportunity, really, Hendrix, in terms of what what your hopes are it, it for identity, um, and you know this this process, I suppose, um, where people could find out more, maybe from from you, or um, yeah, what would you be your hopes for where identity? this way of being with identity might go or the field of family therapy and yeah. exploring things like identity or training yeah. um i think we need to broaden our understanding about how we see identity in the field and that may mean that we may need to challenge and question what people are exposed to in terms of their reading on courses um, the authors we would often go to in, in terms of their writing because it's their their subjective views, which then we model and then we perpetuate on other people. Um, I think there needs to be 
great emphasis is on how people show up, not just in terms of their social graces or just thinking about intersectionality. It's just giving people a lot more space to do a lot more thinking about the, what we said earlier about naming what what kind of identity you're talking from, what identity is showing up here right now, how helping people to reflect on self in that way and start to model more of that in our work because it's always present, but it's not necessarily explicit. So it's making it more explicit and less implicit. Um, And if we can do a bit more of that, I think it will it will help the profession to kind of reach more people into the coming into profession because that people can start to see themselves like, oh, this is a profession that does this as well, you know, Mm -hmm. or it starts to question how we do identities in our kind of professional kind of contexts like hands or um social care or other kind of sectors and in terms of people wanting to look me up they can come to like my website hendrixhammond.com and um, drop me an email or something and you can yeah hear a bit more um and what else anything else i want to add i hope people have you know been able to reflect on themselves in this conversation and hopefully it helps with their ongoing work and practice so thank you both of you Shaza and julie it's been really lovely and, it, and i'm i'll probably go away today and tonight and there's gonna be lots of thinking but i'll i'll be having um based on this conversation so i really value this so thank you thank, thank you. you so much Andrew. thank you all right appreciate your time <laughs>